So this week is the beginning of Black History Month here in the UK. So I thought it'd be really cool if I just re-uploaded and uploaded new episodes of all the black VCs and black founders that have been on Startup Hand-Me-Downs over the last year or so. So today, with that being said, I'm going to re-upload Charles Hudson's interview. For those who don't know, Charles is the managing director and founder of Precursor Ventures. They just raised their second fund, actually, at $31 million, which is sick. Uh, their first fund was $50 million, which he raised in 2017. And this episode initially launched or initially was put on the air in 2018. This is a sick episode because Charles, all he does is talk about the realities of being a venture partner, of being a VC and being a founder. Um, obviously, Charles is black, so he talks about his experiences being a black founder and a black VC trying to raise money from LPs, uh, limited partners especially as a first time fund manager. Really insightful, super informal, and he really breaks down what it takes to raise money from a venture capitalist and how to navigate starting a startup and raising capital. Great episode, really happy I done this. Shout out to Charles again for coming on the show and massive shout out to Charles for raising a second fund. Now, obviously it's Black History Month and I think this is a time for us all to be super reflective on the great leaders, the great entrepreneurs, the great, investors that have come before us over the last few years not just the activists which are obviously important but i think if you're in startups if you're in business you should really use this time to think about the other people who have been hustling or who have hustled and got to where they wanted to get to in uh in life whether it be in business or as investors because there are a ton no matter what public opinion is or no matter what people say there are a ton of successful black entrepreneurs we just don't know enough about them so Maybe use this month to do some research and let me know what you find. Tweet me at Philip Kusumu or at Startup HMD. Okay, let's get into the episode. You know, I realized that building games companies and like just being a founder is really stressful mm. and it's really difficult and it, it, it takes a lot out of you. And honestly, like I looked at where I was in life and said, how do I feel about the prospect of going through this again? And I said, honestly, do I have what it takes? And I know that to be to do a startup, you really have to commit. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu. And thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I got to interview Charles Hudson, who is a serial entrepreneur and the managing partner of Precursor VC. They do early stage investments and they focus on investing in the first institutional round of investment for the most promising hardware and software companies. Prior to starting Precursor VC, Charles was at Soft Tech Ventures and his role was focusing on identifying investment opportunities in the mobile infrastructure space. And before that, he was an entrepreneur. He founded an events company, which he sold, and also a gaming company, which he went on to sell. But as you'll see from the interview, 
he sees both of those exits as somewhat mediocre. This was a really insightful interview with Charles as he spoke about being a founder of Color and an investor. Okay, that's enough for me. Let's get into the action. So Charles, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. So Charles, when you are at an event, how do you introduce yourself to people? I usually will tell people I'm the managing partner of Precursor Ventures and a former entrepreneur. Cool. Former entrepreneur. Interesting. We'll, we'll get into that. Um, before we start talking about, I guess, Precursor and, and the amazing work you guys are doing, um, talk to me a little bit about your early career. Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning, the first, <laughs> the first job I had was working for InQtel, the CIA's venture capital group. And I worked there right out of college for about three and a half years. And it was a really good experience. I joined in sort of late 99, early 2000. So right as kind of the internet 1.0 bubble was bursting, but we had this interesting market position where we were very focused on things that were less trendy. So we were doing a lot of things that today would be called big data, cybersecurity, B2B software. So as painful as the B2B uh, sorry, as painful as the, the internet bubble bursting was, you know, we were in a really different part of the market and I learned a ton about investing in, in bad cycles. Which obviously paid off, I guess. I sure hope so. <laughs> it feels like it. Yeah. Um, we actually spent some time at Google as well. I did. That was a great experience. You know, I, I spent some time there working in business development after business school and really learned quite a bit about what it's like to do deals at, at a big company, mm. kind of how large companies work and at the time you know this is google circa 2007 it was just really cool to be at a company that felt like was really executing on all cylinders yeah and to just be surrounded by really smart people and i guess in terms of going into business development what made you choose business development as opposed to product or another side of the business so i tried my hand at product i really wanted to be a product manager Mm. and I tried product management and I realized it wasn't a great fit for me for a couple of reasons. One, I didn't have an engineering background and my first product experience was in a pretty technical B2B product. But second, I realized that a lot of product management is more in the building, dealing with your engineering team, trying to make really difficult calls about features. Mm. And business development, I think, suits me more because it's a little bit more out of the building. But I will say, like, the biggest thing I learned from being a product manager is that it's easy when you're a non-product person to think that defining and specking a feature is really easy. Yeah. And you have this this notion that we'll just, just put it in the product and, like, have a product that can do everything. And I think even my brief stint as a product manager just taught me about the constraints of building products and how important it is to sort of limit and make important decisions around what is and isn't in the product as opposed to just letting everything be in and creating a knob or a slider for everything. That's so interesting. So you feel as though in order to be a a good or great product manager, having a technical background is kind of like a, should be a precursor almost. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for me, it was an impediment. I can't speak for all other people. You know, I worked on a pretty technical product where actually knowledge of the underlying technical capabilities of what um, the server appliance we were building could do was an important thing to understand when building the product. I can think of some consumer facing products or some other products that are maybe software light right. where having a deep technology background isn't as important because the 
company is a consumer of technology, yes. not a producer of technology. Interesting. Okay. I get that. And so then after, you know, working in business development, you actually co-founded two um, startups yourself. And one of which, which I found really interesting was one in the invent space. The yeah. power. So how did that come about? It's kind of crazy. Uh, sometimes you have to be careful in life what you wish for. So <laughs> I'd gone to a conference with a friend and I didn't think it was very well produced and I didn't think the content it was very interesting. And so I was remarking to my friend that, Hey, you know, I don't, I'm not that impressed by what we just spent money on and sat through. It wasn't a great event. My friend said, well, you know, be, be kind. Creating events is really difficult. And I said, I feel like I could probably do a decent job at this. Mm. I'd never been in the events business, but I just had a feeling that I knew what I didn't like about the experience I just had at that conference. Yeah. And my friend said, I'm going to introduce you to a handful of people that are doing some interesting things in the world of free-to-play games and virtual goods. And this is before that was a thing. It was really before the the Apple App Store. It was before the Facebook Apps platform. <clears throat> and I met a bunch of people from Asia mm. who were building games companies that, that were, the games were free, but they monetized through in-app transactions. Right. And as I met those folks, I was just like, this is totally going to work in the United States when someone figures out how to bring it to our, to bring it to our market. Right. And that was that. And so I started an events business to sort of focus on that theme. Cause I felt like it wasn't being well covered. And just at the point in time when I felt like the business was getting too large for me to handle and manage, uh, we decided to sell it. Okay. You, you skipped a whole bunch of stuff right there. <laughs> yeah, I <did>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you kind of had this hubris that look, I can do a better job. And turns yep. out you actually did. So what were kind of some of the issues you were facing when you were starting up this business? Because I've tried to plan events before and it gives me a headache every time. So well, two things I realized. One, I liked the idea of programming and choosing the content. I didn't as much enjoy the process of um, recruiting vendors and uh, et cetera. sponsors yeah. and all of these things. And so I partnered up with a guy who was world-class at the logistics side mm. of events. And he was just really, he, he had never done it before, but he was, a, he had a natural head for it. Yeah. And so we were a pretty good team. I think the other, the other two things I realized were one, this is at a time before any of the big tech blogs had conferences of their own. So VentureBeat didn't have their series of events. TechCrunch didn't have Disrupt. Right. GigaOM didn't have their event series. So ironically, people were very willing to promote our events because they didn't have anything competitive. Interesting. And so like that was one of those time-specific what's the world look like when you start a business yeah. element that gave us an advantage that was really useful. And the other thing I realized is that if you are too reliant on event sponsors to underwrite your event, you will become a conference that's beholden to your sponsors. Mm. And so I felt like it was really important that we had an event that was fundamentally focused on the attendees and making sure they had a great experience. Right. Because if the attendees had a great experience, they'd come back. And if the attendees came back, the sponsors would always feel like they wanted to be there. Yeah. That's good. And was this funded? Was this self-funded? Was this bootstrapped? Yeah, totally bootstrapped. We basically used the proceeds from each event to sort of underwrite the, the planning for the next one. Nice. And this, um, was this full-time? Were you doing this full-time as well? No, this is why we started selling the business. It started out as a part-time business 
And it was very complimentary because I was working in games at the time. And ironically, all of the jobs I had in games all came through that conference wow. through meeting other people in games who were who were willing to let me run the, the conference business as a side uh, business because nice. it was complimentary to doing business development in the space. So then you sold that cash in, no investors to pay off. And then um, what did you do next? So it's it funny, at the same time that I was selling that business, I've been working for a games company that was acquired by Zynga. So in the span of about four months, I went from having two pretty all-consuming jobs to having none. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was very, uh, it was like going from 60 to zero. Wow. It was really kind of... You didn't want to move just, over part of the um, acquisition or they just shut it down? No, it was, um, you know, there wasn't a natural role for me. And I, I did a lot, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, you know, part of me, you know, wonders what it would have been like to spend some time at Zynga, but mm. it, there just wasn't a great fit for me. So I got a little office in Mountain View and started working on my own ideas. Right. And then that's when, I guess, Bionic Panda Games came to life. Yeah, it was, um, the. there was another gentleman on that in that company that got acquired by Zynga who also didn't go as part of the acquisition. And he and I started thinking about businesses we could build and we try to do everything other than a games company having just come out of games he said we gotta do something different we can't go back into games <laughs> and uh, we tried we tried building a product that was kind of um a way to distribute jobs on facebook oh interesting and um what we quickly realized is that most people did not want to blur the lines between professional and personal mm. on facebook and that put that product was like pushing a 3,000 ton boulder up a hill. People mm. just did not want to use it. How long were you working on that for? We worked on that for probably four or five months before we realized, and we got an MVP version of the product out. People just didn't like it. Wow. They didn't want to use it, and we got very strong, forceful feedback from people that they, that was not something they wanted. But we both had Android phones, and we realized that, that you know, for all of the great things about Android, the apps experience on the phone was pretty terrible, and this is 2010. Mm. And this is when the Google Play Store did not yet have, you know, well-supported in-app purchases. Yeah. And we just said, well, look, iOS has worked. And it's been really powered and driven by games in the App Store. Android's lagging behind, but will eventually catch up. And it's a global phenomenon. Maybe we can build an Android-only games company. Wow. And so me and the two of us decide to do that. And at the time, you were also, um, I think you started at Softech at the time as well. Yeah, right? I started as a venture partner working with, uh, at that point, it was just, uh, it was just Jeff and me at Softech. And we later, you know, added Ashley on the operations side and, and Steph and Andy. But I joined Jeff and he said, hey, look, I see that you've got this startup that you want to work on. You should go work on the startup and we can do um Bionic Panda for you most of the time and Softech some of the time and we'll find a way to make it work. Wow. That's like the best case scenario ever. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. It's a, you know, I don't know that I would ever do it again, though. It's really hard to be all in on your startup and to be responsive and supportive of the portfolio companies that you back out of right. your venture. It's well, I guess it's hard to have, go all in on your startup and have a job. Yeah. 
exactly <laughs> yeah well you seem to have made it work you know yeah <laughs> work times yeah it was it was it just squeezes out it squeezes a lot of other things out of life but um yeah it was a good experience were you like working 20 hour days was it like insane? yeah i was seven working days a week. all the time seven days a week wow. it was not healthy do you advise so i guess as a vc now how do you feel when someone says look i've got this idea and you know it's gaining some traction but i still have my full-time job like can you empathize with them or are you like cut one both actually i empathize with the feeling that if only this thing were a little bit farther along I would totally quit my job and do it. I, I think most people are genuine when they say that. Mm. I just think it doesn't work that way. If you have something that's working, it really does need your full-time attention. And there were definitely days at Bionic Panda where I feel like if I hadn't had two things to do, the company would have been better off. And so what I encourage people is like, I know it's scary to to jump, but if you really believe in this new thing you're doing and you can afford to do it without dramatically imperiling your family and personal situation, you should work on your startup and quit your job. Right. But everyone has their own set of unique circumstances and everyone has a different risk tolerance. But I haven't seen many really great startups get built, venture-backed startups, right. get built as part-time side projects, mine included. Yeah, because you guys at Bionic Panda, you raised... We ended up raising $2 million by the time it was all said and done. And ironically, you know, if we'd been more patient with Android, I think we might have had a different outcome. Android was just more broken under the hood for what we needed it to do on the on the in that purchase side than i realized right and so we got impatient and decided to try to build multi-platform and i think if we had been patient and just sort of stuck it out on android i think we might have had a better outcome so what, what happened in the end did you just guys to shut it down we ended up selling we had one game that was really ironically as what happens with most games companies our first game was by far our best and most popular game and we sold it to another games development company. And then we shut down the rest of the assets. And how how many users did you guys get? Boy, I don't remember. We had we had millions of downloads and um, we had a really, it's weird, I still get emails from people asking me, hey, what happened to Aquapets? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to Aquapets, where is it? And, uh, I still get, I still administer the Aquapets fan page and I will still occasionally see people say, whatever happened to that game, I loved it. <laughs> Which is, which feels bittersweet. Yeah, that's crazy. And like, how were people finding out about this game? You know, we uh, we had it in the apps. We had it in, in Google Play. And, you know, it was really a live wallpaper more than a game. And live wallpapers as a category were not nearly as competitive as games. Mm. So we managed to be a, a pretty highly ranked live wallpaper app. And we had some promotion and feature from Google. And it, life was good. It was a really fun experience to, to work with that team. So I want to switch gears a little bit now and, and talk a little bit more about venture capital. So what made you get into venture capital after leaving gaming and the event space? You know, I realized that building games companies and like just being a founder is really stressful mm. and it's really difficult and it, it, it takes a lot out of you. And honestly, like I looked at where I was in life and said, how do I feel about the prospect of going through this again? And I said, honestly, do I have what it takes? And I know that to be, to do a startup, you really have to commit and you really have to be willing to go for it. Yeah. And you have to be willing to make a bunch of sacrifices that are not pretty and that are frankly, this is really difficult. And I said, I don't think I want to live that way again. It was just 
too much of a sacrifice. And I said, I'm willing to say that Bionic Panda will probably be my last product-oriented startup that's venture-backed. And that, as disappointing as it is to have that, you know, no one wants to go out with a sub suboptimal outcome. Mm. But I said, I think it's the right thing for me to do is to take the lessons I've learned from being a founder and exec and apply those to helping other people as opposed to building something else on my own. Right. The way you talk about your experience as a founder, it sounds as if you, you view your experiences as a, as a failure, but you've had two exits. So, so where does that come from? You know, I, I'm very self-critical about Bionic Panda because I think with the benefit of hindsight, there's a lot of, it's funny as a, maybe it's because I'm an investor now. Yeah. An investor me would have told founder me, Hey, you started this company because you had this thesis on Android. It's working just not as fast as you'd like. Maybe you should just double down and be patient. Mm-hmm. And look at the end. We, if I really zoom out, we were too, we were too early. Yeah. And I feel like part of your job as a founder is to get timing right. And we had a strong hypothesis around timing. We were just wrong. And so I feel like it, it's a bit of a fair because it wasn't the outcome that I thought we could achieve given the team we'd assembled and how we'd started the company. And, you know, I, I learned a lot from it. And a lot of it is, it's ironic. I think failure is the default for most startups. So having a failure as an investor it's much easier to recognize the same patterns in others when yeah. you've been down that path. And like, how big did your team get with Bionic? We got to about 14 people. Okay, so decent size. Yeah. So so you're now a VC, and I guess, were you loving it as soon as you became a VC? It's like, yep. oh my God, this is great. There's a salary, I get to help other people. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, talk to me about some of your first investments. Boy, we've made a ton of investments. We have 82 companies in the portfolio right now. So we've been really busy for the last three years. At, that's at SoftTech? No, at Precursor. Oh, right. No, I was talking about your, your time at SoftTech. Oh, yeah. So we had some, uh, boy, we, we invested in some really great companies. I was really fortunate to work with companies like Tulip Retail, which builds software for retail sales associates, they've just done a fantastic job building out that business. I'm really impressed by what Ali and his team have built. It's just, it's just honestly quite impressive. And we worked with them for several years and they just raised a large round led by Kleiner Perkins after really grinding out a product that was not easy to build. Mm. I worked with another Canadian team, Top Hat, which used to be called Top Hat Monocle, which is doing some really awesome work in the higher education space and around learning analytics and classroom management. And again, like I have this penchant for founders who have these ideas that just take a while to materialize. Mm. And I seem to really gravitate towards people who have this sort of dogged determination to build something, even if it takes a really long time. Right. So I was going to, that was, that leads me to my next question. Um, a lot of VCs have like kind of their own philosophy when it comes to investing. And I, and I feel like you just alluded to yours, but if you yeah. could say a little bit more about that. So what are your, some of your philosophies when it comes to investing and looking for like founders to invest in? You know, I think 
we take a slightly different view than other people. I think a lot of other people are really focused on the product and touching and feeling the product and trying to understand the product. Yeah. We don't do that here. And I'll tell you why. It's it's a little I don't think of it as contrarian, but some people have said that it is. I don't know that most VCs are really in a position to assess product. I think the two things I've, I've learned is you as an investor <laughs> provide product. There's a high likelihood that feedback will end up in the product. Yeah. Be, in the early days, I think in the later days, it becomes more clear that your feedback is just one up. But in the early days, like you can be more influential than you realize or maybe even care to be. Mm. And second, if I'm not the customer, the only thing I really care about is does the team have good product instincts and can they ship and build something that their consumer will love? And I think the only way you know that is the team has to ship a product and it has to get in the hands of the consumer. Yeah. So we spend most of our time actually trying to assess the founder. What does he or she believe? Do they have some non-obvious, unique insights about the problem that they're going after? Because look, if they have obvious insights, they're going to end up with a ton of competitors. And I think that's death for most startups. And so to me, like they've got to have a couple of unique beliefs and insights about the market they're going after. Like a, hey, it's a $10 billion market for B2B software. Great. That tells me nothing mm. about like the specific product you're trying to build. And so we look for these product, we look for founders that have bottoms up product insights, insights that usually come from wrestling or grappling with a difficult problem and having an aha moment. Can you give me an example of a founder who's kind of like done this well that you've invested in? Yeah, The Athletic, I mean, they felt from the very beginning that that, that they could build the business around having people pay them. Mm. And that rather rather than relying on subscription, so rather than relying on, ad, relying on advertising or some other business model, they said from the beginning, we're going to charge people for it because we think the content's worth it. And two and a half years ago, that was not a popular position to take. Mm. But they just had a real conviction that in order to make the model work, they needed to pay the writers, consumers would pay, and that if they could, they could give these sports journalists a really good living and that if what they predicted would happen around the collapse of sort of local newspapers, if it continued to happen, those sports writers would need a place to go. Yeah. And they just had real conviction and really good insights. And so I was really happy to back them, even though it wasn't clear to me that the subscription piece would work. I just thought they'd really thought it through. And so and these founders, of course, um, you know, Precursor, you're the main, I guess, USP of you guys is that you invest in diverse founders and underrepresented groups. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's it's something that's kind of developed. I wouldn't say we started the fund with, with the thought that, hey, we're going to focus on diversity. I just felt that in my time at SoftTech and in my time as an angel investor, I'd met people of all walks of life and all backgrounds who I thought could be founders. All right. And because we're not burdened by waiting for traction or evidence, we're in a position where we can just back the people that we think are good. Right. And in my mind, it ought to be a diverse set of people based on geography, based on race, based on gender. Like we ought to, we ought to hold ourselves to a higher standard in terms of who we fund. I mean, one of the things that, um, 
I love about Precursor. I mean, first of all, um, you know, again, congratulations on the new fund. Um, like I mentioned earlier before the call, I first saw you guys on um, USA Today. And I, as soon as I saw the fund, I felt deeply connected for many reasons. And um, the first reason of all was because you guys obviously stole my idea because I wanted to, <laughs> I kind of wanted to launch this fund first, but it's fine. You guys can do it. Um, but um, I guess as a, as, a, as a black founder and a black VC, you've sat on both sides of the table now. And I guess what has been your experience in tech as a founder of color and as a VC? It's a good question. Um... I think it's definitely more difficult. I think you probably don't get the benefit of the doubt. Mm. And like, I, I think the, the problem or the challenge for founders of color and for, for female founders and for people who look different is it's very rare that someone's going to make an explicit comment that leads you to believe that the reason you didn't get funding was the thing that makes you different. Yeah. But at the back of your mind, sometimes you have a meeting that feels off or you get the sense that you just, you know what it is? I'd say the predominant feeling is sometimes you'll meet people and you're like, I just didn't connect with that person. Yeah. Like, I feel like that meeting would have gone better if we'd had a connection. And then you ask yourself, well, why, why didn't I connect with that person? What was the gap? And I think in most cases, you try to find any reason other than race or gender. And sometimes... You come up with something, you just go, oh, that person, you know, that person's into hockey and I'm not into hockey. Or that person is really into kiteboarding and I'm not into kiteboarding. Or that person's from the East Coast and I'm from the mid. You, you try to find, but I think sometimes you feel like you can't help but feel like um, your background is part of the challenge. And did it ever kind of hinder you in any way? I mean, I'm sure. I mean, it's, this is a difficult question to answer when people ask me. I think the short answer is it must have, yeah. even if I'm not acutely aware of 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 how. Because I think you sort of don't know about the opportunities you missed out on yeah. because yeah. people didn't include you or didn't offer them to you or because they said no to you or because they weren't comfortable. Like, I sort of don't know. What I do know is that, you know, I came into this knowing that, look, starting a venture fund is hard yeah. for anybody. And it's going to be super difficult to make this fun successful and get it raised and i have to be super buttoned up to make that happen and like you said starting a, a vc fund is is equally as hard as starting a startup but you could almost argue it is the same as starting a startup because you're starting from nothing you have to go out you have to raise money you have to build a team so what have been some of the challenges i guess race aside of starting a vc or starting precursor oh i think i think there's I think starting a startup in some ways is a more straightforward, I wouldn't say easier. It's a more straightforward proposition. Mm. It's actually pretty difficult to, cause you could bootstrap a startup. Yeah. You could work nights and weekends and crank on a startup and it will grow more slowly, but it will grow. A venture fund, like the input, cause in a startup, the input you need, the inputs you need are time and an idea Yeah. for a venture fund you need access to startups and you need money. Yeah. So if you don't already have money, it's actually very difficult to bootstrap a VC fund. Absolutely. I'm sure. <laughs> and I think the other thing is if you, venture capitalists, I would say are relatively easy to find because most of them want to be found. Yeah. Right. Most of us were in this business because we want people to find us 
and bring us good ideas. The limited partners who fund venture funds, they're not all interested in being found. There's a chunk of them who really don't want to be found. They're, they're wealthy, they're successful, they're pretty happy with their current circumstances. They're actually not looking to get pitched. And two, there's 500 some odd early stage micro VC funds. Cre- creating a credible story around your own differentiation is not an easy task. It really isn't. I guess in your case, your unique selling point, you know, could either entice someone or deter them straight away. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, like our fundraising deck doesn't have anything explicit about a diversity mandate or a strategy or anything like that. It's just something I believe in. Um, But there's a lot of early stage VC funds out there. And, you know, I, I met a plenty of limited partners who just said, I can't, I, I don't know how to sort you all out. There's, there's too many, there's too many of you all for me to figure this out. In a world of 500 VC, early stage VC funds, how do I decide that you're the one? Mm, and what did you say? <laughs> I would just tell them, look, here's what I think, here's what I think we can do that's special and unique. Here's why I think we're not just another VC fund. Here's what I think we do better than others. And here's why I think we're worthy of a shot. And we've been fortunate in that we found a set of investors who believe in that and who believe in us. And that's been really satisfying. go back to the topic of you know being um, a black founder because I am myself I'm, I'm a black founder um, and similar to what you were saying before in terms of you know you go into that meeting and you know you just didn't click um, but I guess if you could you know and this is a tough question but if you could narrow it down to like one thing why do you feel as though there aren't enough founders um, founders of color in tech and um, I guess what can be done I think Part of the challenge is at the very early stage, most of what you're doing is betting on people. And I think they're betting on people. When I think about like, what's the hardest, what's the hardest, scariest thing to do as an investor? It's to bet on an unknown, a person who's not a part of your network in any way, shape or form, who didn't go to a school or isn't part of an institution where you can sort of social back channel them. Yeah. It's just, it's hard to bet on what I call strangers. Yeah. It's scary. And so the bar for betting on strangers, I think is higher. And I think on average, my experience has been most African American or Latinx founders generally feel more like strangers. Mm. Just you don't have the same level of social connectivity through institutions, or it can even be little things like you live down the street from someone. Yeah. Or your kids go to the same preschool, or they're on the same soccer team, or they're in the same Cub Scout troop, whatever it might be. I think as investors, we're not always honest about how much comfort we take from social connectivity. Yeah. And it it, it sort of is it makes things it's a shortcut to to doing the work of getting to know someone who's different and, and outside of your network. And so at Precursor, we try to be open 
we take a lot of cold meetings and we read a lot of cold pitches. And I think we're trying to cultivate an ethos where you don't have to know three of our founders mm. in order to get a meeting here, or at least in order to get us to take a look. The bar is higher. Like you can't send me a garbage cold email, <laughs> but if it's well written and it seems relevant, I'll open it and read it. Yeah. And you know, over the weekend I got something and I wrote back to someone and said, Hey, this is actually pretty interesting. I'd actually would like to check out with you. Wow. And I guess more so, I mean, I totally agree with everything you just said in regards to, you know, VCs generally try to, you know, find some kind of social proof or social connectivity with most of their founders, which obviously narrows the pool for founders of color. But I guess on a more micro level, what can what can we as black founders do to kind of change the narrative around, you know, being a founder? Can we not just be like, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? I think the good news is, I would say five to 10 years ago, there was, I think, a lack of recognition around some of these challenges. And people would have just said, look, you just built a really good product, pitch investors. It's a meritocracy. Investors are colorblind. There's no bias. If you're not getting funded, it's because you don't have a good idea. Mm. I think people are realizing now that that's not the case, that people have biases, conscious and unconscious, and that that creates challenges. And so what I think about what can be done differently is continue to continue to be undeterred by sort of the challenges out there. Cause I think there are more VCs who are recognizing that they've made things unintentionally, the good people at least unintentionally difficult for founders of color. So that's one thing like, don't, don't, don't psych yourself out of trying to go raise money or fundraise Two, I think there's just more, there's more of a community of African-American founders now, hmm. I think could be helpful. Yeah. And so you don't have to go it alone. There are groups out there and people out there that you can connect with. And I think the hardest thing is feeling like you have to 